0: Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 46. Uh, this week, it's myself, Michael. I'm here with Mark and with Gladys. Uh, Sarah is actually in California at a conference, so she won't be joining us this week. We also have a guest. We have Matt Egan, who's here to talk to us about Microsoft Sentinel and third-party connectors and KQL queries in general. But before we get to Matt, uh, let's take a little wrap around uh, the news. Gladys, why don't you kick things off?
1: Actually, I'm going to do something a little bit different Um Instead of giving news, uh, I'm going to talk about something that is affecting uh, many customers. I've been uh, in calls with many customers that are trying to align their security to the executive order. The White House, uh, for for those that are not familiar with this, the White House has released uh, some orders uh, on securing infrastructure that has prompted a lot of different organizations like DOE TSA, DOE stands for uh, Department of Energy, TSA, Transportation Security Administration, CISA, um, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, NIST, National Institute of Standard and Technology, and others have given a lot of different guidance. And while the customers have been trying to align this security, they often call us and they're asking us, okay, we need guidance on Zero Trust and SASE, and what is the difference on on these? And and frankly, I often found it really hard to explain it uh, to customer what is uh, what is the difference. Uh, so I've been reading a lot of documentation, even from Gardner. Um, in order to come up uh, with definitions. So, hopefully, um, this is uh, going to help uh, some customers. And Mark and Michael, feel free to chime in with additional information because it just, we are receiving so many calls. It, it's just unbelievable. So, basically, where, what I was reading, um, I, I found out that SASE is mainly a framework that aims to securely uh, connect users and endpoints to applications and services, no matter where they are, uh, whether they're on-prem or or, uh, in the internet at home or whatever, the framework is supposed to secure that communication. Because they are looking to consolidate all the information, they are focused heavily on network capabilities. So it, you would see a lot of routing, SaaS acceleration, content delivery, caching, and other uh, services uh, being interconnected. Now, Zero Trust is a framework that assumes everything is, can be compromised. And as such, a defense layer approach is used to protect the environment. Zero Trust also relies op- upon the implementation of least privilege. The key is to mitigate risk uh, by proactively verifying uh, every, every information, every attribute available for the identity endpoint application, data network, and infrastructure. Um, so it, the amount of verification required depends on the information available to be verified. So when you compare both, SAS is a framework that aims to provide that secure connection. And it monitors, uh, there's a lot of network capabilities, while Zero Trust is aimed to also provide that uh, security through verification by uh, reducing risk. I found that although both use similar uh, infrastructure, SA- SASE contains some re- uh, sources of contents from quality of service uh, what area, uh, networking optimization information that zero trust may not take advantage of. While zero trust, uh, because we are, uh, implementing least privilege, uh, there's services like cloud infrastructure entitlement management, uh, just in time access and others that may not be necessarily used, uh, with SASE. So, in other, other words, uh, both frameworks may be accomplished using similar infrastructure, but each of them has some extra components not necessarily uh, needed uh, to accomplish the other.
2: Yeah, if I can add there, uh, Gladys, like the thing that I've seen is that, you know, when we were first trying to figure this out, because I helped contribute to some of the you know, slides and whatnot um, for Microsoft on this one, the original place that we started was like a Fenn diagram where they have a lot more in common than they have different. And that's that's very true. And and so that's one of the ways to think about it. Sassy also we found tends to be a little bit more like implementation specific. And so, like, zero trust is, you know, there's kind of two zero trusts. One is the big strategy that drives modernization of access control and sec ops and governance and asset protection and all those kind of uh, things. Um, but people also tend to say, you know, zero trust, you use it for, like, the access control sort of modernization as well. So there's kind of like two zero trusts, like a big zero trust, and then, like, sort of a, a specific initiative, a smaller one. Um, and SASE tends to be pretty close to that access control piece and really focused on that. You know, the, what is it, Secure Access Service Edge? And so that's that's one of the ways that they sort of overlap. And and SASE does tend to bring in a little bit more of a network bias we've seen. Um it's definitely embracing identity and sort of it requires really identity as a service. It's not always explicitly stated, but you know, all these different CASB secure web gateway things really kind of require an identity as a service in the middle to kind of bind it together and pull it together. So it it and it has a little bit more of a, an availability uh, piece because it's talking about the service edge, not just in secure terms, but also in you know performance terms. And so Microsoft is you know kind of a fan of both frameworks because they bring two different you know shine the light in two different directions on different problems. Ultimately, the the thing that we found that's kind of cool is you know say you go down a sassy road, but you're still moving towards you know zero trust, you know as a big picture kind of initiative too. So those are you know some of the things that that I've seen in that in that space.
1: So so be in the lookout uh, for our links that we're posting in the um, Azure security podcast because uh, Microsoft uh, Marks uh, has uh, developed most of it. Uh, it has a lot of documentation that can help uh, not only um, align the security requirements uh, to all these guidance, uh, but also uh, help you understand the differences.
2: Actually, I don't really have a a news link this week either. (laughs) You can chalk it up to laziness, or but like one of the things that's come up, um, you know, just is is the cyber reference architecture has gone around a few times on uh, on LinkedIn and whatnot. And uh, there is a SASE diagram in there, which I kind of neglected to mention um, earlier. But uh, in the cyber reference architecture, um, there is a, a whole SAS, a section on SASE and kind of how it does a comparison uh, to Zero Trust. One of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit that that is also covered in the cyber reference architecture and something that we're working on some you know sort of deeper analysis and content on is a little bit more around security teams and roles. Like one of the things that I've sort of come to a more crystal clear understanding about in the in the past, uh, say, about a month or so, is really that security has two operational functions, two sort of active, you know, interacting with the environment, interacting with the operational team, uh, like IT ops, DevOps, et cetera, functions. One is what, you know, most people are familiar with kind of on the reactive side, SecOps or SOC, Security Operations Center. Um, or uh, security operations, and that's that tends to be all about the live fire incidents, the actual attackers, in the environment. And you definitely need a dedicated operational team. Work with IT ops teams, DevOps teams, investigate, respond, and you know get that uh, addressed. Um, but there's also this sort of um, preventive operations, um, which you know, I mean, most of the time it usually shows up as just a vulnerability scanning team that asks the various different IT ops teams to go apply patches and. And and it's and the thing that's been interesting is watching that plus sort of all these cloud security posture management and secure score and all these kind of new cloud capabilities come in that allow you to have sort of real time on demand operational view into not just your software vulnerabilities, but configuration vulnerabilities and sometimes some operational practices and, and identifying some of those kind of things that could cause risk. And so it's been sort of an interesting realization that we really need two different operational teams in security. One focusing on that, you know, you know, hot live fire incident, but also, you know, focusing on that security posture. We're calling this posture management at Microsoft. That's really focused on the preventive side. Um, just like the SOC, you know, doesn't actually change the environment, right? It works with the IT operations team to do it, but is kind of there, you know, in the different parts of the teams are doing, you know, glass watching and then working with the teams, you know, enablement of the teams as well. We've seen some organizations that apply this really well to application security. Um, so instead of just having a, you know, here's a scan and a and a 50-page file to to go into your app development, much more engaged in the DevOps processes and and building experts within the DevOps teams, and then you know actively working um, with the IT operations teams as well. But ultimately, they found that the the number of incidents that happen on one of these teams that have worked with this sort of application security help desk or enablement or evangelism team um, is much lower than the app teams and the DevOps teams that don't. And so we're, we're really seeing like from a bunch of different directions that need for, you know, a formal focus and structure around that sort of preventive operations. And so we're pulling together as many learnings and best practices around that as we can lately. Um, and we've sort of hinted at this uh, in the MCRA stuff with the plan, build, run type of uh, things there, and we're looking to, to do even more.
0: So I have a few items that sort of took my uh, took my interest over the last few weeks. The first one is, so Azure DevOps was supposed to deprecate TLS 1.0 and 1.1 um, like three days ago, but they actually rolled back the change because there were some compatibility problems with some big clients apparently. That's the extent of what I know, but yeah, so at some point in the future there will be a rollout of deprecation of TLS 1.0 and 1.1, so only TLS 1.2 um, and eventually TLS 1.3 will be supported. The next one is uh, with a product that's near and dear to my heart in as a Key Vault, we've now increased the service limits for all customers. Um, historically, Key Vault could only do, for example, a GET um, against uh, RSA, say, software keys of around 2,000 every 10 seconds. Uh, this has now been doubled um, to 4,000 GET transactions per 10 seconds. Now, before you start thinking, oh, that's fantastic, let's you know let's <laughs> double our uh, number of hits that we're going to make against Key Vault, Um, I would sort of urge against that, and there's a few reasons for it. The first one is, you know, Key Vault is not really designed as a massively transactional um, product. It's not like a database that's designed to have massive amounts of throughput. And to be honest, you're not really going to be rolling keys and secrets and certificates that often anyway. Uh, So the general rule of thumb there is to actually make a a cached connection instead and actually say, have, you know, only say hit Key Vault every five minutes or every 10 minutes, uh, but certainly not. 2,000 a second, or 2,000 every 10 seconds, and the reason for that is also is if if you do start hitting those limits, um, Key Vault will throttle your connection. So you know even though we have increased the connections and that's fantastic, uh, I would still caution against just uh, you know opening the floodgates. That's uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, the next thing is in Azure Database for PostgreSQL um, in the hyperscale version. We now have private endpoint support, private link and private endpoint support. Uh, as I mentioned on multiple podcasts, uh, we see you know, this happening across more and more past services. Uh, and so this is another thing that's great to see. Uh, so that's PostgreSQL for uh, uh, hyperscale, and that is uh, general availability. The other one under general availability, also for Postgres SQL, is we now have a whole bunch uh, more certifications. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of these things. Uh, Most of them seem to affect European countries, so um, AFM and DMB in the Netherlands. I do not pretend to be familiar with those. In Switzerland, there's the Financial Market Supervisory Authority. So these are applied to Netherlands, France, Switzerland, Denmark, Belgium, and Poland. So if you're in those countries or have uh, customers in those countries that require these kinds of certifications and you're using PostgreSQL, then we have some good news for you. So uh, that's basically all the news that I have. This week, so let's turn our attention to our guest. This week, we have Matt Egan, who's here to talk to us about uh, inter- interconnecting Sentinel with third-party connectors. Uh, Matt, hey, welcome to the podcast. Uh, would you like to spend just a moment to explain kind of who you are and what you do?
3: Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, as you mentioned, my name is Matt Egan. I am what we call a global black belt uh, here at Microsoft which is a very fancy title for uh, really just an SME uh, on our security tools. So I specialize in the Microsoft threat protection tools, so Defender for Endpoints, Defender for Office, as well as Microsoft Sentinel, uh, wherein I have a lot of experience in building out connectors for the systems, uh, as well as uh, integrating with other uh, third-party tools. So really uh, pleased to be here. So yeah, just for everyone out there, we may
0: end up accidentally calling it azure sentinel and if you hear that we mean microsoft sentinel just so you know so obviously a big part of sentinel is ingestion and here we are to talk about data connectors and so on so do you want to give an overview of you know what it means to ingest this data you know what does that take and
3: you know what are these sort of pre-built data connectors that we have and why would people use them sentinel has 120 plus uh pre-built connectors these are ones that have already been uh, set up to ingest data sources from either first-party Microsoft solutions, third-party solutions, from a uh, number of partners. Uh, we see things from other cloud services, from on-premises services, even generic data sources. So things along the lines of uh, syslog or things that are you know common event format or Ceph uh, formatted data. All of those connectors are pre-built. They're integrated inside of the system. You can just deploy them from inside of the portal and start bringing in data from uh, all those different sources. Now, data is of course, the the lifeblood of any SIM uh, that's out there. So for anybody who doesn't know uh, Sentinel is a SIM, it's a cloud-based SIM. So we handle everything from the management of the servers, the clusters, data storage, maintaining that 90 days of rolling data that's part of the service. You can go up to about two years if you wanted to, but we give you 90 days right out of the box, Uh, as well as the pre-built data connectors um, so you can start bringing things in. These data connectors could be anything from events on your firewalls to events in your Azure Active Directory or something from your on-premises servers. And like I said, that that's really the lifeblood of the system. It's all about getting those uh, logs in, those events, and then being able to do hunting queries, analytics, leveraging things like machine learning models to find a, a anomalous behavior, and then raising alerts and taking response actions after that.
1: So Matt, how would a customer bring data from other products or even threat intelligence into uh, Sentinel if they're not uh, included in those pre-built data connectors?
3: If you're just looking to get in threat intelligence, uh, actually, there's a couple of ways that we can bring in that data. Uh, We actually have a pre-built connector for sticks uh, and taxi. Uh, So we can support a taxi feed of 2.1 and higher. Uh, And TAXI, uh, just so everybody doesn't know, it's the threat... I can never remember what the acronym for TAXI means, but it's the uh, actual exchange of information uh, between the systems. And STIX is the structured threat intelligence uh, exchange. Uh, But the TAXI protocol is the way that those different uh, records of threat intelligence are exchanged. And we actually can accept a connection uh, to a TAXI server, bring in threat intelligence that way, you can also publish data on the graph. Uh, so if you're used to using graph.microsoft.com, you can put uh, IOCs, uh, Indicators of Compromise, uh, onto the graph, and then those will be ingested into uh, Sentinel. If, however, there is a data source that isn't an already pre-built one, or you have a, uh, another source of uh, maybe threat intelligence or some sort of enrichment data that you want to put into the environment, we do actually have a full API that you can leverage to pull data in from other sources, or rather I should say push data in from other sources. Uh, leveraging that API, you can have a uh, connection directly into the threat intelligence uh, environment, or you can use the uh, underlying log analytics workspace tables and push data directly into those. So you mentioned enrichment. This is actually
0: a comment that Sarah has has brought up in the past. I going to be honest with you, I'm not hundred percent sure what this enrichment stuff is so could you just give us a a brief overview of what you mean by enrichment and how that is different from any other kind of data
3: let's think about the data that we're bringing into the environment Uh, we are seeing for example let's take uh, a number of events that are coming in from say uh, servers right and we see data about all these different servers that record may contain something along the lines of the server name Uh, an IP address, maybe an event ID if it's a Windows box or if it's something coming in from, say, syslog, it could be a facility code uh, and maybe a severity that goes along with it and then some additional data that's uh, traveling along with it. Well, for somebody who doesn't know what those particular machines are, if I just hand you a machine that is called server 01, that's not very helpful. Uh, It's a little ambiguous as to what that box could be. So what I might want to do is I might want to enrich some of the data that I have in the environment. Maybe I have a reference to what all those servers are. Uh, that might be a CMDB um, you know, uh, that I have somewhere outside of my environment that I'm going to use to pull in um, maybe who owns the server. What is it doing? Where is it uh, normally talking to? That could be one type of enrichment. Another type of enrichment data could be something about a user inside of the environment. Maybe it's uh, additional data about that user's role or maybe where they work or something along those lines. Or it could be data about really anything. Uh, As long as it's enriching my investigation, it's giving me a deeper insight, better views into the network at large, the environment at large, uh, or maybe even just the threats uh, that I'm seeing inside of my environment. It could come down all the way to adding in, you know, geographical information uh, associated with IP addresses, which don't get me started on that one. I could talk about that for hours, Uh, but you might want to pull that sort of information in to say that, hey, this particular IP address is coming to me from a particular country. And, um, you know, I want to know that sort of information without my users having to go look it up.
0: So I've actually been doing a little bit of work in that area. Just recently, I was um, trying to trigger Azure Key Vault, or more accurately, Microsoft Defender for Key Vault, into sort of making sure that everything worked by using a Tor endpoint um, to access uh, Key Vault, or at least attempt to access Key Vault, I should say. Would that be an example of enrichment? Like, so for example, if I had some database or some lookup or some API or something that had a list of ongoing um, sort of Tor exit points, would that be an example of enrichment? Certainly could be.
3: Yeah, it would be something where uh, maybe you have. Uh, getting back to like what Gladys was saying about threat intelligence, you know, it's really any data. It could be threat intel. I mean, generally, threat intelligence is kind of limited towards people normally limited towards things like you know indicators of compromise. In other words, something that is definitely bad, um, meaning that this IP address uh, is related to you know the bad actor that's out there, or this file hash is related to the malware that somebody may have seen somewhere. Um, Other types of enrichment data could be exactly that. It could be those Tor endpoints that you know, uh, and you might be saying, because they may not be bad in uh, sort of the the general parlance, but they're mostly of interest to you. You want to know where those particular uh, IP endpoints might be or what service they may be related to. Uh, And that's very similar. I mean, any sort of thing that you could bring into uh, your environment that is of use to you, um, I would consider that to be an enrichment feed uh, feed of data that's inside of there.
2: I'm curious, uh, for the enrichment data to work, does you have to actually copy or move the data into Sentinel? Or can it sort of do lookups in, in other databases?
3: It depends. Uh, I always love giving that answer because it depends on what you want to really do. You can, of course, copy the data in. Um, I personally think that that's one of the most efficient ways to do it uh, just because you can then take advantage of the scale that is behind Sentinel itself in terms of speed, reliability, etc. You can, however, refer to data outside of Sentinel. Uh, it's actually a feature of the Kusto query language or KQL. You have the ability to refer to data using a feature called external data. External data will allow you to refer to say, you know, a CSV file that you have inside of Azure storage blobs, or maybe you have a a JSON file that's somewhere else in another service, or maybe it's even an API that can respond back with the information in a data type format. You can use that external data function to refer to that data in place. Now, the nice thing about that is if it's something that's being maintained externally, Uh, For example, we actually have some threat feed data um, that we actually have published inside of our GitHub repository, and we use the external data query to refer to it. That way, if it's being maintained outside of your environment, you can just go ahead and refer to it, get that information, utilize it at the time, and not ingest it into uh, Sentinel itself. On the other hand, if you have data that you're maintaining and you have the ability to pull it into Sentinel, I would say go ahead and do that. Uh, One example is I put together uh, an Azure function, actually, and this is a great example of even how you can extend things out beyond the prebuilt connectors. I put together an Azure function that does a registration data access protocol query or an RDAP query. RDAP, if you're not familiar with it, is the new version of Whois. Um, Whois itself, venerable service inside of the internet, uh, has been around forever. It was originally designed to be read by humans. So if you do a whois lookup on a domain, or you look up an IP address, you get back information that's really, really easy for a human being to read, but not so easy for a machine to read. The Rdap query, uh, actually this new protocol that they have, replaces that, and it makes it so that you get a JSON notation, uh, you know, JavaScript object notation or JSON file as a response back for a domain that you're querying on. So if I go and do a lookup on Microsoft.com, I can find out all the registration information about that domain. Where was it registered? Who owns it? When was it created, uh, Etc. And all that information is returned back to me as a JSON file that I can either use uh, inside of my you know, query, or the way that I've done it is I have it so that the system goes out and queries for every domain that I see in the environment. And then I have another analytical rule that's running in Sentinel because the RDAP query is taking it and pushing it back into Sentinel. I then run a regular analytics over it that says, hey, if I see a user has gone out to a domain that has been registered within the last 30 days, I want you to raise an alert for me. That's a newly registered domain. It's a little odd that somebody would be going to it that quickly. So I want you to actually just let me know that somebody's had that happen. There's nothing wrong maybe with the domain. It's not necessarily bad. So it doesn't actually qualify as an IOC. Um, but it is something I'd want to look into. You mentioned something
0: really interesting you, I didn't know existed. You said that you could call basically some code from KQL. Mm-hmm. Now, is that KQL that can do that or is that a something that's in Sentinel? And, and to
3: what degree can you call something from KQL? So it's in KQL itself. Uh, it's not necessarily limited to just Sentinel. Uh, so you can actually use it from any log analytics workspace. It's part of the language. It's designed to... Refer to data storage, right? So um, you can use it to call out to an Azure Blob. Uh, you could use an AWS Blob. It could be Google. It doesn't really matter. If your API that you're calling um, is able to return the value um, in something that it can utilize, uh, then you can you can call that. So there's a, a, a IP lookup actually that uh, I use all the time, and it returns the values back as JSON notation. So what I can do is actually just call external data using the, what's called the let keyword. Uh, So I could say, you know, let this value be equal to the return from this call out to this uh, external source. Now I do have to define what the data looks like. Um, I can't just uh, let it, it, it won't understand the data on the other side. So I do have to know something about the data. So if it's returning IP info, maybe I have a City, a country, uh, an ASN, or something like that—that's assigned to it. I have to predefine that as part of the results. But as long as I can map those results back, it can then come into a data table that can then be used in line with my query, uh, and that way I don't have to, you know, store that information myself. Now there is a drawback to it. That one drawback is, you don't—it ex- doesn't accept pipelines communications. Uh, so in other words. I have to basically be calling a static uh, IP address. It can't be something that I can put together, concatenate a string uh, in line inside of Kusto. Uh, I'd actually have to go ahead and, and have that as a predefined string. That's not totally insurmountable. It's really great, again, if I'm calling out to like a, uh, like a fixed storage file or something like that, because that's what it was originally designed for. On the other hand, if it's something that I'm calling out to some sort of a dynamic uh, API, then it's really not the best case for it. It's really not the best case from just a, you know, best practices anyway. You want to try and reduce those calls uh, as much as possible. And that's another reason why bringing that data into Sentinel can make sense because we're actually keeping in line with those best practice recommendations.
1: It seems that we keep bringing a lot of capabilities uh, for enriching uh, that data. Can you talk a little bit about Codeless Connector?
3: Codeless Connector is great. That's the new functionality, it's in preview now. And what it allows you to do is to create a fully SaaS-based connector platform, leveraging uh, the capabilities that Sentinel has. Uh, So there's a number of different ways, like I said, that you can do a data connector. Uh, One could be that I could run it as a playbook inside of Sentinel. Playbooks are the um, automation or SOAR capability that are built into Sentinel and they're built off of Azure Logic Apps. And they're great, they're very useful, very powerful. Um, But you can also use uh, those to not only take automated response actions, but you could use them actually to ingest data from uh, another source. You can also use Azure Functions, of course. Uh, Azure Functions are our serverless compute that you can run. But the thing is that both of those, actually require you to kind of put together some infrastructure in a way. I mean, like the logic apps require that you actually put together the playbook for it and put together the structure. Um, a Azure function could be, you know, putting together the PowerShell script that you want to run or writing it in C-sharp, or maybe it's in Perl or Python or something like that. Perl, that was weird. I don't know why I said Perl, but anyway, it's in Python. Um, but what the new Codeless Connector allows you to do is you define what your service is using a JSON file, uh, again, and uh, it becomes a fully Codeless Connector for it. You don't need to stand up anything. Uh, you tell us what the API is that you need to connect to. You give us the information about how you want to connect to it, uh, meaning you know, authentication, tokens, uh, secret keys, etc., And the system can then go out, make that connection, and start bringing that data into Sentinel. What's really cool about it too, is it doesn't only support bringing in the data, uh, it actually supports the new health uh, monitoring as well. So we can monitor the health of that connection to tell you if it's good, uh, bad, if it's up or down. Really, uh, really, really nice system.
0: It's funny you should bring up Perl. I used to do a lot of Perl development back in the day before the days of PowerShell. I always used to joke that um, Perl is a write only language. <laughs> Once you've written it, yes, you can never much. understand you never <laughs> understand what you actually wrote. I still got a bit of a soft spot for Perl, but yeah, I think PowerShell's taken uh, taken that position in my life.
2: I'd love to get your opinion on geography based, or geo based IP filtering, because I've got some opinions here, but I want to I want to hear your take on that one.
3: Yeah, so um, basically talking about uh, you know geo IP, it, it is sort of my personal um, you know issue, uh, and it's not really that I have anything wrong with it. Um, I think that it is a fine capability as long as people understand some of the potential limitations of it. Um, And somebody can disagree with me. People always do. I'm more than happy to hear critiques about how I'm wrong. But the problem I have with it is that it comes down to a a really fundamental question about geo IP-based blocking. And that's really, what is an IP address? And then what is geographical data? And how are the two attached to each other? When you look at an IP address, it is completely fungible. Uh, to sort of steal the term of the day, it is not a non-fungible token; it's fungible. You can replace an IP address with another IP address because they are, you know, different uh, uh, different things. that are really just attached to the network for communications, and and that's what they're there for. The geographic data, however, is fixed place and time, or fixed place and time. Sure, places are moving temporally. No, it's a fixed geographical location on the planet uh, that is then the, the, to which the IP address is then tied. For some reason, you know, people think that it's it's now non-fungible, that it's never going to change, that it could never be wrong, and that's not quite true. Um, we have to look at the fact that you know when IP address information or when IP uh, IP data was first sort of put together, it all comes out of a database, right? So IP addresses are assigned by IANA. Uh, that's the international association of number authority, something like that. Uh, And they have a database of all the different IP address blocks around the world. And those different IP address blocks have information, interestingly enough, inside of who is uh, about to whom they've been assigned. And when we take that information, we can then discern at a certain level that this IP address, or at least this block of IP addresses belongs to this country. Well, that's assuming that there's never a transfer of that IP address from uh, either one of the uh, regional authorities, because they're not all in one major place anymore. I mean, IANA used to be like one org, now it's actually broken out into different groups around the world. There's ARIN here in the United States, there's RIPE in Europe. Uh, there's AFRANIC, uh, there is AP- APNIC uh, for Asia Pacific, each one of which has different IP address blocks that have been assigned to them. And sometimes they actually do interregistrar transfers, where there'll be a block of IP addresses that maybe was assigned to, you know, Japan at one point, and now it is assigned to the United States. During that transfer, well, the transfer doesn't really take much time. It's an IP address, once again, um, but the registration information might take time to change. Also, it's only at the country level. Um, The individual registrars might have information about to whom they've assigned a block, uh, and that may give you information about the city or at least the city that's on the registration record. The further information about to whom it's been assigned inside of that country could be completely random at that point. It all depends on uh, which uh, ISP they were assigned to or which registrar they were assigned to and how accurate and detailed that data is. Now, that's how that all sort of started was people went out and they mined all this data out of the uh, different registrars and used that as a basis of uh, creating a lot of the GeoIP databases. They've been augmented over the years um, by people doing things like war driving. Uh, War driving is going around with a a Wi-Fi connection and recording geographic information along with any of the networks that you see or can get connected to. And some of that has actually proven to be fairly useful. The only problem with that, though, is, again, it's only as good as the source data. If there's not a lot of source data to go with it, or if that source data is inaccurate, it's now somewhat questionable. And if you are getting back to my original point, if you're using this as a source of truth, well, the kind of the question there is it's about, you know, truthiness. Um, It's truthful only as far as the source data is truthful. Uh, I've seen, for example, a lookup that I did on one uh, IP address, it came out of a certain country. And that IP address, one of them had it in the capital of that country. And another source actually had it about 2000 miles away from the capital of that country. And it's like, well, those are you know, pretty far spaced pieces of information there. So if you're doing things, you know, or trying to do things down at that sort of tight geo level, it's going to be really, really difficult. If you try and do it at the maybe at the country level, maybe you have a um, a need to block th- something from perhaps, uh, you know, maybe it's an ITAR restricted country or an OFAC, uh, you know, person who maybe is associated with a country or something like that. Uh, those might be useful, um, but it's only as good as the source data itself. Uh, And even there, there's some potential issues around things like IPv4 and IPv6.
2: Yeah, like uh, the way that I think about it, when when there's always like one of these, you know, grand internet debates, I always fall back on sort of the cost of attack is does it actually create cost or, you know, friction, pain in the butt, whatever you want to call it for the attacker, right? And, And if so, it has some value. And then the next question is, how hard is it or easy is it to do and so you know so the way i think about it is like okay if if i've it's definitely you know create a little bit of annoyance if you block a particular country and you expect adversaries from that country or you expect you might get adversaries from that country and if you absolutely know that listen we're we're a small regional bank for example we don't have people coming in from outside of you know the US or something like that okay yeah you can maybe put a detection on it or possibly a block especially if you're getting a whole lot of noisy attacks from you know a given uh, part of the world where you just don't do business so like I'm okay with like if it's easy and it's not going to break stuff yeah you're going to add some 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 friction but like, would I bet my security posture and you know, my critical crown jewels on it? Oh, no. Exactly.
3: And that's kind of my point, right? Is that it's a, it comes down to that level of, I think the truthiness also leads to the level of comfort that goes along with the data. Uh, as you pointed out, if you're a small entity that never does business outside of a certain area, it is just easier just to go ahead and say, I'm going to block all these things. They're, they never should be there. Although I do have to ask sort of the what if question of well, what if one of your customers just happens to be traveling in an area that you've blocked? Now we've completely disabled you know, their capability to do business with us, and we've made their life uh, more inconvenient. If it's something of, you know, uh, maybe I'm concerned about it from a, a data exfiltration standpoint, I don't want my, my data going to this other place, well, from the point of putting a, a roadblock in front of the attacker, there are these things called VPNs. <laughs> and people will use them uh, to do things like get around all sorts of geoblocks. Uh, you know, if they're willing to do it to watch a, a television show or a movie in another country, I'm fairly certain that an attacker is willing to do the same thing to get your data and get out of the, uh, your blocking. What I would say makes more sense to me, at least, is, and this is sort of along the lines of, you know, endpoint security and assume breach, is assume attack, right? Assume that anything that's going anywhere in the world is potentially a malicious actor who might be taking your stuff uh, or might be trying to attack you. And if you see any sort of anomalous behavior, irrespective of where it is in the world, treat it as exactly that. It's anomalous behavior. It doesn't matter to me if it was... From my own country, from you know another country, uh, if it's from my neighbor next door, an anomaly is an anomaly is an anomaly, uh, and I need to treat them all sort of the same way.
0: When he when he talks about you know geo and, and so on, the way I look at it is application security. You know people often talk about you know security through obscurity, and I've heard people say, "Oh, you can't do security through obscurity," and I'm like, "No, you actually can do security through obscurity so long as it's not your only defense."
3: And as long as you don't tell anybody.
0: Yeah. That's a good point. But the point is when I mean, what we're doing here with this sort of geo IP isolation slash blocking, slash fencing, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's okay. Just as long as, you know, you're not betting the entire organization on you know on that one defense.
3: Oh yeah. It's gotta be it's gotta be layered.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way I look at it, as you were, as you and Mark were talking about it, it sort of reminds me of an example of something that may be good enrichment data, right? It's not it may help you make a decision, but it's not, you know, it's not like got a security guarantee around it.
3: Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the thing about, I I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, talking about like the databases and, you know, all the information, the geo data that's out there. There's one thing to consider here too, is that as time evolves, some of this data becomes less and less useful uh, and less and less um, capable, really, uh, from a a detection standpoint. Uh, What I mean by that is, most of the geo IP data that's out there uh, that folks are using is based on IPv4. Um, so that's your standard, you know, octets of, uh, of data, you know, so your one sixty eight, 192, 168, 1.1s. And what we are seeing now is that, of course, because of the exhaustion of the IPv4 address space, uh, we're moving everybody to IPv6. Well, that creates a little bit of a problem um, because... Well, if you think about it just from a mathematical standpoint, IPv4 is 2 to the 32nd power, so about 4 billion addresses that are out there. 4 billion is a huge number. It's a lot of stuff, but it's something that we can actually even think of mathematically in our heads as humans, and we can have a database that has 4 billion uh, IP addresses in it, and we can say that they belong to these particular groups or particular uh, people. Now, when we start moving over to IPv6, though, we're talking 2 to the 128th that's 340 undecillion IP addresses. Uh, That is a number that is so big that it takes about, I think it's five commas to get uh, into the uh, quadrillions or somewhere along those lines. I'm not a mathematician, so don't hold me to it. Um, But the problem then becomes you've got this now massive database of information. Now, of course, it can be done the same way that an IPP4 database can be done. You can do it by, you know, octets and subnets and, you know, class A type, you know, information. That's still a lot of data. And in this modern world also where things are uh, from an IP address standpoint, stuff isn't even fixed in a fixed place anymore. Mobile devices, mobile PCs, um, you've now got just this huge domain space that you've got to try and figure out. Um, and I think it lends itself towards that, you know, you have to assume attack all the time and just say, look, I'm not going to really care too much about the IP address uh, that this is coming from. And instead, I'm just going to treat it all as potentially suspicious or potential attacks.
0: Yeah, when you look at it that way, I think what you just said is that, you know, we can have a database of 4 billion or so entries, but we can't have a database of a, you know, whatever the number was, quintillion or something. 340 undecillion. Okay, that that too. Uh, You just can't do that, right? So it becomes totally unmanageable. That's a a good point, yeah. So one thing we always ask our guests is if you had one final
3: thought you'd like to leave our listeners with, uh, what would it be? So a final thought. I I would say probably the biggest one would be um, (laughs) don't forget the basics in security. By that, what I mean is it's not always going to be about the latest, greatest, finest security tool that you might see out there or the fa- you know, the flashiest thing uh, that's out there. A lot of security comes down to still doing the basics, getting them right, operationalizing them, making them not just something that you do all the time or do every once in a while, but you do it all the time. Uh, something that you actually internalize, good cyber hygiene, internalize good device uh, and user and app security postures, uh, and that it's not something that is easy to do. It's not something that you can necessarily flip a switch and make it suddenly happen, but it will pay for itself um, quite a bit uh, by taking the little bit of extra effort uh, to put those in.
0: All right, with that, let's bring uh, this episode to an end. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining us this week. I, uh especially like your, uh, your thoughts on geofencing and geographic restrictions based on IP addresses. So again, thank you so much for joining us and to our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us this week. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SetPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.